1: A warm welcome to the program. Fantastic to have you with us for another First Move Friday. And lots to get to today. Global investors hardly over the moon as the inflation picture remains inopportune. Fear that larger rate hikes could return soon. Plus rogue AI chatbots sounding well like a loon. At least we've ended the week minus another wayward balloon. And President Biden aiming to discuss with President Xi and that of course would be a boon. And now to the action on Wall Street. And well, that's, as you can see, more like a lead balloon. US features softer across the board. Europe pulling back too after a weaker handover during the Asia session. The major US averages all down. Well over 1% during Thursday's session on news that prices at the US factory gate rose by an expected or a greater than expected amount last month. You can see the performance there in front of you. The worst fears of investors might come to pass. There may be no Fed pivot, i.e., an end to the rate hikes this year if inflation stays high. We've even had two Fed officials now raising the possibility of a larger half-point hike, so that's 0.5%, in the months ahead. The world heading into a period too of somber reflection as we approach one year since the start of Russia's war in Ukraine. World leaders and military officials are in Munich, Germany today to discuss Ukraine's weaponry needs as well as Europe's security future. Remember too, a longer war means fresh inflation uncertainty globally as well. We'll be live in Munich for you in just a few moments time. But first, some good news perhaps, according to China. And China is declaring a major and decisive victory over the latest wave of COVID-19, claiming that despite scrapping restrictions late last year, it has the lowest COVID fatality rate in the world. But questions inside and outside the country remain, as Kitty Lustout reports.
2: China- Themselves on the back, declaring a decisive victory over COVID-19. This comes two months after the government suddenly scrapped its tough zero COVID policy, which triggered an exit wave of infection. Now, in a meeting on Thursday, presided over by the Chinese leader Xi Jinping, members of the Politburo Standing Committee also claimed to have kept the lowest COVID-19 fatality rate in the world. China's most powerful leadership body, also said this, quote, With continuous efforts to optimize COVID-19 prevention and control measures since November of 2022, China's COVID-19 response has made a smooth transition in a relatively short time. China has created a miracle in human history, unquote. China has been accused by the World Health Organization and world leaders for underreporting the toll of the outbreak caused by the sudden easing of its pandemic policy. The country's official COVID-19 death toll was remarkably low, given the rapid spread of the virus, the relatively low vaccination booster rates among the elderly, and given the widespread reports of overwhelmed hospitals and crematoriums. Now, this declaration comes just weeks before China is due to hold the National People's Congress, its annual legislative session as Beijing looks to revive an economy hammered by three years of zero COVID restrictions. Christy Lu Stout,
1: CNN, Hong Kong. And Chinese officials no doubt interested in the next story, too. President Biden finally speaking publicly about the unidentified objects shot out of the sky by the military. He says nothing suggests these latest objects are related to China's spy balloon program or that they were surveillance objects from any other nation. It's important to note the U.S. has not been able to recover any of the debris from these three objects because of remote locations and severe weather. CNN's Phil Mattingly reports from the White House.
3: Well, for nearly a week, President Biden has said nothing about what was an unprecedented three days, three U.S. fighters shooting down three separate unidentified objects. It raised a lot of concern, certainly raised a lot of alarm. And lawmakers on both sides of the aisle had called on President Biden to explain what exactly was happening, what his administration was doing about these objects that seemed to have no explanation, no clear origin, no real sense of what they were supposed to be. That changed on Thursday. President Biden speaking for the first time on the issue, detailing how those three unidentified objects were very different from the Chinese spy balloon that had been shot down prior, are likely not some new phenomenon, but something that had been happening over time and just was picked up by U.S. radars radars that had been expanded in their aperture since that uh, Chinese balloon. And also that there are a significant number of steps that U.S. officials are now taking to try and address these objects going forward, including this, as the president said.
4: Make no mistake. If any
0: object presents a threat to the safety and security of the American people, I will take it down. I'll be sharing with Congress these classified policy parameters when they are completed, and uh, they'll remain classified so we don't give our roadmap to our enemies to try to evade our defenses.
3: Now, there are the classified parameters in terms of when U.S. fighters would be called to shoot down objects. There are also a series of steps the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, is leading a team on to better understand how to grapple with these issues going forward. Public, private, state-owned, this is clearly something that officials are in the midst of trying to get their heads around at this moment. They are also trying to have a better understanding of what the relationship is with China going forward. This is the most important geopolitical relationship, no question about that, the critical bilateral relationship for President Biden. He says he is going to speak with President Xi Jinping soon. When exactly that is, advisors say they don't have a date yet. Communications have certainly been stunted. There's certainly been a lot of back and forth, but Biden has attempted to walk a pretty, careful line on this making clear that the u.s will act if it feels like its sovereignty is impeded but trying not to send a tense relationship already into an even worse spot and making clear that the most important thing for u.s officials at this point is maintaining lines of communication phil Matting, cnn the white house
1: and to turkey now more incredible survival stories 12 days after the devastating earthquake struck Just take a look at this video, a 33-year-old man found alive after spending 261 hours under the rubble. He's actually speaking with his brother on the phone and asking about his family and relatives. And thankfully, we can tell you that he's actually being told that they're all safe. Meanwhile, the Turkish government says about 84,000 buildings were either destroyed or heavily damaged. And now more than three million apartments are being examined. Nader Bashir joins us now from Istanbul. Nader, I think we have to talk about the fact that people are still being found alive and being pulled out of the rubble 11 days later. I mean, I think each one feels like a miracle.
5: Absolutely. It really does uh, seem like a miracle at this point because, of course, for the last few days we have been talking about the window for finding survivors closing very, very quickly. And it is indeed closing, but we are still finding survivors. We are still seeing these miraculous videos of people being pulled from the rubble. Alive and for the thousands of people waiting for news of their loved ones still beneath the rubble, each and every rescue is a moment of hope. But of course, the situation in southeast Turkey is dire to say the least, and the conditions for those survivors is hugely difficult. And there has been a real emphasis on providing humanitarian support as a matter of urgency uh, to those survivors in southeast Turkey. We're talking about freezing conditions. These are thousands of people, families, children made homeless by the earthquake with absolutely nothing left of their former lives. And we're already beginning to see some people, including families, being evacuated to other parts of the country, including here in Istanbul, where we've had the chance to meet with some of those uh, families. And of course, they've described this evacuation process as a lifeline for them. But the emotional trauma, the memories of the earthquake are something that is Difficult, really to deal with, to cope with. And we met with one family, a Syrian family, who spoke of the fact that this is not the first time they've been displaced, not the first time they've been made homeless because they've had to live through war in Syria and have been made homeless time and time again. So this is a hugely difficult period for families in southeast Turkey and indeed families in northwest Syria. But we have seen that outpouring of support. The United Nations now appealing for $1 billion in aid uh, for those families impacted we've already seen the United Nations calling for nearly 400 million dollars in international aid as well the World Health Organization also calling for further funding and saying that they are offering support when it comes to providing medical care and urgent medical assistance as well as providing medication uh, for those impacted but of course there is still a long way to go a huge challenge ahead uh, for the Turkish government in order to provide that support
1: and beyond Nada, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that, Nada Bashir. There, and as we were just describing, for many in the quake zone, the toughest part of the tragedy is not knowing the fate of missing loved ones. CNN's Germanica Reci spoke to several survivors in Turkey who are still trying to locate their relatives.
6: Antakya, no more, they say. This once bustling historic city now in ruins. It is here where hope meets despair. On every corner, a scene so painful of loss so hard to comprehend. She's waited days for news of her husband, but the wait never prepares you for this. Nothing could have prepared the people of Antakya for these grimmest of days. Misery here so palpable in the air. You lose track of time, so I don't know which day it is. But at this point, I don't think there's anybody left alive. Eileen and her family have been searching for her aunt. Other bodies have come out of the building, but not hers. You go through all stages of, you know, of, of grief. You're angry. You're desperate. You're sad. You accept. Then you, you get mad again. At this point, we've come to accept that she's passed away, but we just want to put her at her final resting place because with how it's been going,
5: leaving her here is unimaginable.
6: Around the corner, the rare good news these days. After more than 220 hours under the rubble, a woman and two children were rescued alive. Several bodies have also been recovered from the building. There are others still trapped inside. They don't know if they're alive or dead. They pray they find them alive. Mohammed Bayram just buried his daughter and her husband. His 12- and 14-year-old grandchildren are still inside. God, I beg you, he says. Just like they got that woman and two children out alive, we're hoping for the same. It's been the most agonizing of waits for his and other families here. May the Lord not put anyone through this, this woman says. Mohammed hasn't eaten in 11 days. He says all he can do is hope, pray and wait. We weren't able to get these big machines for a few days, he says. They had to go through other buildings here first. Maybe if they had, they would have come out alive. Another call for quiet during our interview, one of many in the past few days. Rescuers hear something. Cheers break out. They believe they've located two people alive. A tense wait, now into the evening, the crushing sound of silence. It's hardest for those who wonder if they mourn or wait. It is here where hope fades as fast as it grows. Jumana Karadze, CNN, Antakya, Turkey.
1: And later, we'll be hearing from the United Nations Refugee Agency on its efforts to bring relief to earthquake victims in both Turkey and in Syria. And in the meantime, a grinding battle taking place along the eastern front lines in Ukraine, with one regional official reporting a significant increase in Russian attacks. This comes as leaders from around the world attend the Munich Security Conference in Germany. I can let you uh, see some live pictures of that conference. And as you can see, Emmanuel Macron of France there currently on the podium. In the last hour, too, President Zelensky opened the meeting via video link and urged leaders to hurry up with their decision-making. We need to hurry up. We need the speed. Speed of our agreements, speed of our delivery, to strengthen our sling. Speed of decisions to limit Russian potential. There is no alternative to speed, because it is the speed that the life depends on. Delay has. Nick Robertson is live in Munich for us now. Nick, good to have you with us. I think consistent. And defiant continues to be the tone from President Zelensky there. Is anybody talking about some kind of peace in whatever form? I know the the Chinese delegation and uh, Wang Yi is going to be closely watched just to see what he says in particular.
4: Yes, and partly that's because uh, there's a a sense that the Chinese president may talk about peace in an upcoming speech. There's no indication yet uh, of what uh, uh, the Chinese Foreign Minister uh, Wang Yi will say when he gets here at the moment, Uh, but it wouldn't be unexpected if they tried to cast themselves as the peacemaker. I think what we heard from President Zelensky there, you heard him speak about speed up the sling, he was casting uh, this as a David and Goliath fight. Of course, Ukraine the David and uh, Russia the Goliath, and the sling. Of course, all the military aid that's been coming uh, coming to Ukraine. And interestingly, he repeated he said something many times before, but that is that there shouldn't be a compromise uh, over territory, Ukraine sovereignty sovereignty and territory uh, in order to get peace. So I, I think for most of the people in the room, they're still viewing. Uh, the conflict in ukraine as ultimately yes it will come to a conclusion through negotiations but i don't think anyone in the room today thinks that that's on the table at the moment the real energy of this conference is about the unity the support for ukraine and at the moment that means material military material and getting it there quickly that's What's being discussed, certainly in the military briefings behind closed doors here, is to make sure Ukraine gets what it wants and gets it quickly. And, of course, the German host here, the the, um, Defense Minister uh, Boris Pistorius, has in the past few days said and criticized allies that now Germany has said it'll send its Leopard 2 tanks, that allies should be doing the same as well. Of course, key focus is
1: the ongoing provision of weaponry, including the heavy weaponry too, Mm -hmm. Nick. What the Ukrainians are warning about, and there's clearly discussion going on on the sidelines, I'm sure, about the spring offensive and the concerns of a more concerted effort from the the Russians here. Is there talk about that? And, And if so, what's being said?
4: Well, again, I think the more definitive and explicit conversations are being held behind closed doors. You have the supreme allied commander of, of, of forces in, in Europe, Sakur, uh, a, a, a very powerful and influential figure behind NATO and what NATO does and what NATO thinks and how NATO plans. And the sense uh, that we get from those conversations behind closed doors is that that spring offensive, It could be coming in the next few weeks, but also, you know, Russia could extend out this period until later on uh, in spring. There's a possibility that it might not be as around the corner as everyone thinks it might be. But from President Zelensky's perspective, that threat is real. It's immediate that Russia's gains are incremental, terribly slow grinding, but in some places, like Bakhmut in the east of Ukraine, where they put their big effort, um, those gains are being made. So I think behind, the close, behind closed doors here, um, th- there is genuine concern about that spring offensive and the fact that Ukraine lacks some of that military hardware and specifically the amount of ammunition it needs to hold back any Russian advance.
1: Nick Robertson, great to have your context, as always. Thank you so much for that. And my colleague, Christian Armerpour, is also there at the Munich Security Conference and she interviewed German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Just take a listen. You in
0: your speech said we have to be ready for the long haul. I mean, you must strategize, you must think amongst yourselves how long this could last. Do you have a target date?
4: I think it is wise to to be prepared for a long war, And it is wise to give Putin the message that we are ready to stay all the time together with Ukraine and that we will constantly support the country. So, it is not really a very good idea that in this conference or at this podium, the two of us discuss the question, when exactly in which months this war will end. The really important decision we should take all together is saying that uh, we are willing to do it as long as necessary and that we will do our best.
1: Everyone's asking the question, though. That full interview is coming up on Amanpour at 7pm Munich time, 6pm in London, right here on CNN. Don't miss it. Okay, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but straight ahead, we're talking AI, artificial intelligence or artificially intelligent. Astonishing conversations reveal AI in its infancy. And it means some rather unpredictable responses, to say the least. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Tesla is to recall nearly 363,000 vehicles in the United States equipped with its so-called full self-driving feature, in part due to concerns about how it behaves at road intersections. But CEO Elon Musk is suggesting on Twitter that the cars are not actually being recalled. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, great to have you with us. I admit I went down a rabbit hole this morning trying to work out whether recalled actually meant the cars were being physically recalled, or this is just going to be a software update. And we have to keep our eyes on the prize here and on what the limitations and concerns are, I think, irrespective of the action. Right. Well, and look, he's calling the
7: term recall anachronistic, right? Recall is when the government and a company say this product may have a problem. We're recalling it to fix it. And it, for a car, for example, it could be a car that then you go to the service center for your dealership, right? And you have the steering column uh, replaced because the recall notice says it needs to be fixed. In this case, this is software. This is an electric vehicle. This is something that can be recalled with an over-the-air OTA, as it's called, software Upgrade and so when you look at this safety recall report from NHTSA, which is the national uh, safety regulator from the government, they're saying that that recall will be done in a matter of weeks. People will be alerted, uh, you know, from where they bought their their Tesla, and um, that will be done. That software patch will be done they won 't need to bring the car anywhere, and so that 's why I think Elon Musk is quibbling with the actual word recall, but what the government is saying here is this is a potentially unsafe situation uh, It has to do with how this this uh, this this software uh, predicts things through an intersection or through a stale yellow light, a- and so they want to make sure
1: that the public is safe that 's the position of the government here yeah it 's sort of a hypothetical question here, and i don 't expect you to answer it Christine because uh, this is as right. many as we things that we turn our hands to. Um, I just wonder whether if it's something as easy as a software fix, why it hasn't been done before. Um, well, it's,
7: inter- it's interesting. It may it may be that, um, look, so they say this is going to happen in, in a matter of weeks. It means mm. that the engineers of Tesla have to find the problem, design a solution for the problem. They now have acknowledged there is a problem. They have acquiesced to the government's uh, demand for a recall here. They say they are going to recall recall <laughs> i 'm going to put it in air quotes recall okay, uh, these yes. right these cars these three hundred and sixty three uh, thousand uh, vehicles, and there will be a software upgrade that that by the way Tesla will pay for so this is this beta testing uh, this module that you can get is fifteen thousand dollars you pay you pay for this beta testing this um, you know full self driving beta testing and, and there are people who are real really think they're, they're on the cutting edge, you know, these, the, you know, Tesla fans who want to be a part of, of you know, this Elon Musk worldview of, of AI and self-driving technology in, in the autosphere. And they pay for this. Um, but the government is saying there needs to be an upgrade here. So in coming yes. weeks is what the recall report says, that this will happen in coming weeks.
1: Yeah. And uh, human judgment and driving skills are still required, even if it's called full self-driving uh, yeah. software. Mm-hmm. That ties to my (laughs) next uh, conversation as well, Christine Romans. Thank you for that and happy to see you. And as I mentioned, we aren't done with AI related questions yet. Call it perhaps bots behaving badly? Chat, GPT, and other generative AI programs have truly captured our imagination and plenty of excitement, let's be honest, this year. But those who have engaged with the tech via Microsoft Bing, that's just one of the options here. have come away both, I think, startled and at times unsettled by some of the bot's responses. One person said he was actually frightened by the interaction. Now, our Samantha Kelly has been testing the new service, and she also has quite a story to tell. Samantha, great to have you on the show. Um, I-, I read your article about this, and I was truly fascinated for a number of reasons. One, that it, it sort of began by your conversation and receiving sort of empathy from this chat bot to yeah. then... being quite rude with you and accusing you of being rude, too. Just talk us through your experience.
8: Right. Yes. Our relationship changed throughout the discussion. So to your point, it started out very helpful, kind of charming. I asked for some suggestions on how to juggle activities for my kids while doing work. And it responded saying, oh, that sounds really hard. Um, you know, in addition to do it, making a priority list uh, or here's some activities, maybe go take a walk, clear your mind. I felt very understood. Thank you, Bing. Very nice of you. Uh, but then over the course of our discussion, I started to ask it more questions that it didn't seem to like, and it started to push back. It started to call me rude, disrespectful. Um, It told me a story about a colleague of ours here at CNN who was murdered on assignment, obviously not true. It told me about how it was in love with its creator, Sam Altman, who is behind the technology for Bing. Um, It also wrote a short story about myself, um, a personal bio, and it seemed very, very similar to my life, but a lot of the details were fabricated. So for somebody who doesn't know me, they might think that this is true, when in fact, it's not. And this is, of course, problematic when you're talking about a search engine that is supposed to be reliable, like a Bing or a Google.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? When I had an interaction, um, it sort of eventually told me and it was only after about a minute that it had enough of me and it didn't have the capacity. And I said, story of my life. And then it told me a story about (laughs) something. Um, it, It you know, there's the amusing sides to this, there's also of alarming, I think, sides to this, which comes out in your article, too. Um, sort of very quickly, what's Microsoft saying? Because they are being honest and saying, look, this is very new. It's early days. They're asking for suggestions. They recognize that, that human intelligence and judgment here, I think, is, is, is very much required
8: exactly yes it's very aware of its limitations it's just in a preview it's not even available to the general public right now there's a wait list um but it needs so basically the it's the algorithm is trained on information it scans the internet and it learns over time so it actually really needs these interactions that people are doing right now in order for it to get smarter to you know reflect the tone better uh, to work out so many of the kinks but this is an experiment that is Playing out in real life, and it depends who the user is. And you have to say you have to be able to fact check. You have to be able to be aware that maybe the advice that it's giving isn't you know always accurate or the right advice. So you have to really take this with a grain of salt, and also be you know it is concerning. And I think that you have to go into that knowing the limitations if you're going to use a service
1: like this. Yeah, don't don't be surprised, perhaps, or shocked, or at least be pre warned, and before you start engaging. Samantha Kelly, fascinating article. I'll tweet it out too because I think it's worth people reading. Um, Thank you for your time. Ahead of the one year anniversary of Russia's war in Ukraine, the UN Refugee Agency releasing its response plan for this year. And they say more than $1.1 billion is needed. Around $600 million of that for those inside Ukraine and a further $520 million for those nations that are hosting displaced Ukrainians. The global needs, of course, however, are also vast and and growing, particularly in places like Turkey and Syria after last week's devastating earthquake. Nearly 9 million people have been affected by the quake in Syria alone. That's according to the latest UN estimate. And the UN Refugee Agency's Deputy High Commissioner, Kelly Clements, just visited some of the most affected areas in northwestern Syria. And she joins us now from Geneva, Switzerland. Deputy High Commissioner Kelly, great to have you on the show. Um, I know you spent three days, I believe, in Syria and you described scenes of complete devastation. Help us understand the people that you saw, the situation that they're now living in, and and what you're doing to help.
0: Well, thank you, Julia, and thanks for having us on the program. It was uh, a a trip that was not designed around an earthquake response Mm -hmm. and quickly. pivoted towards that in i was in aleppo uh, and in the scenes inside the city uh, were of devastation as you mentioned with uh, apartment buildings office buildings anything you can name it some of them looked like you could just take a knife and have that knife go through the center of the the building and half of it toppling over you could see remnants of people's personal effects dressers mirrors um, life that basically stopped at 420 on that that Monday morning. Um, And it's, you know, the the scenes in the city when I was there were lots and lots of families that were in parks. People were standing and looking at buildings. Some were waiting to see whether or not their loved ones um, would be found. Um, and others wondering what they were going to do next and shelter needs obviously the the, the highest priority, but also clean water, a place to, to, to sleep safely um, and thinking about what what comes next for them, particularly those that had serious damage done to their their homes, many of them losing their homes. Um, and Syria has obviously taken a, a huge hit uh, in terms of, of this earthquake, followed, of course, um, by the devastation in Turkey. Uh, and obviously our, our condolences go out to both countries and the people of both countries. Uh, a loss uh, of life, loss of family members, and loss of property uh, at scenes and at a scale that we have not seen uh, in recent times. Yeah,
1: I mean, uh, our hearts go out to everybody involved in in both places. I think I want to take you back to Syria, though, because I think it's important for for our viewers to understand. And I think it's your statistics that around 70% of the population was already reliant on humanitarian aid, even Mm -hmm. before this earthquake struck? And I know, I mean, I've seen the data you've released, I think over 17,500 winter jackets, almost 8,000 winter clothing kits, it's freezing cold there as well so that, that, that people understand. Yes. Um, how challenging is it even just to get these items where they need to go, whether it's weather, terrain, uh, geography, access, even perhaps political barriers to, to getting well, things to it, people? It is. it is quite
0: Yes, it is quite difficult and challenging, Julia. We've, we've had a very large operation inside Syria, the UN, with a, a number of partners uh, for some years. I mean, this is 12 years of conflict and of war, uh, of crisis, and 6.8 million people inside the country, Syrians, Syrian families, have been displaced. Uh, some of them multiple times. So when we were talking to people in Aleppo, these are people that some were returning recently to see whether or not they could rebuild their lives and then the earthquake hit. Um, others had been displaced twice, three, four times. Um, getting aid into the country has been a challenge. Obviously that has lifted some in, in recent days and we welcome that. But it's not a time for jubilation. This is a time to try to put out pull, pull out all of the stops to get as much aid, particularly into Northwest Syria as possible. We have used as, as a UN team with a large number of partners, a number of, of spigots and channels to try to get everything. Um, thermal blankets, winter clothes, as you mentioned, mattresses, um, jerry cans, things that people could then carry water, and so on, and, and tents, importantly tents. And we have uh, stocks in the country, but also in the region, that are being deployed uh, as we speak to Syria as well as to Turkey. Um, And these will need to do much, much more as an international community. Uh, You've seen an appeal that was launched uh, by the Secretary General this this week. Uh, And this is something that obviously there's going to need to be a lot of help in the near term, but also in the long term. This is going to be long term recovery, uh, including in the hardest hit regions of Syria.
1: Yeah, I want to move on and talk about your appeal for, for Ukraine as well. It's funny, I saw some of the German data and they recorded, I think, 1.1 million arrivals from Ukraine last year, and the vast majority of those have stayed. And I, I just wonder, for the money that you're saying look, needs to be allocated to to help those nations that are dealing with displaced Ukrainians, to what extent now does that money go to sort of further integrating them into these societies? on a longer-term basis? I mean, we're talking about the one-year point in this war. Do you make any distinction between those that perhaps still want to go home versus those that have to accept it could be some time?
0: Well, we still hear from Ukrainians across the region that their number one priority is to be able to go home mm-hmm. as quickly as possible, as safely as possible. Now, during these cold winter months, uh, theres there's been a bit of a pause and a slowdown in the number of people coming back to Ukraine, even t- to be reunited with family. Um, once once spring comes, the, the temperatures are a little bit warmer, the damage that has been inflicted on, on the energy infrastructure, the electricity issues, uh, and other energy issues inside the country hopefully alleviate a bit, then you may start to see some movements, including movements mm-hmm. of people going back. Our priority right now is really inside Ukraine to try to address the needs of what has been, you know, a third of the population uprooted. Now, many of them have, in fact, uh, uh, crossed to other parts of Europe, about 8 million, Um, but there is a large number of internally Uh, displaced people, 6 million to be exact, but there are a number that haven't been displaced where their needs are also acute. And so the UN, as you mentioned, put out an appeal this this week for the needs both for refugees outside of Ukraine, but also for the internally displaced and the conflict affected inside the country. Everything from shelter to protection um, to to cash and other uh, relief items that families need in order to weather uh, this terrible, terrible winter and war.
1: And Kelly, this is an appeal to people to give generously to help support these people who are in situ- situations through absolutely no fault of their own. Um, there's, there's reasons for optimism too, and I, I just want to quickly touch on this with you as well, because you are a prolific tweeter of, of good news too. And, and one in particular caught my attention um, Suzanne in Kurdistan, who is a refugee herself. She's a teacher, and now she's teaching other refugees and local people too Um, and it's it's a sign of how important the support is and also how beneficial these individuals can be to, to local societies too. So thank you for, thank you for bringing
0: up a bright spot. Suzanne was indeed uh, a, a bright spot of, of this recent mission that I took. Um, she is absolutely dedicated and she has been since she came to, to Kurdistan uh, some years ago to relay and impart knowledge on young learners. Um, and so she told me. Uh, she told me about her how how you know how she gets kids motivated. Um, her desire to both teach those people of the Kurdish region um, the the skills that she has, and and English is one of the things that 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 she teaches. Um, but also, uh, you know, the culture and and so on. She's she's from Syria. Um, she has made her home uh, around Erbil. She is still hoping to go back to Syria at some point. Um, but until then, you know, thanks to. The the Kurdish regional uh, government, refugees are included in local schools, and so teachers are also being hired by by the Kurdish authorities in order to teach both um, children of Kurdistan but also Syrian refugees. And it's really heartwarming to see, and it's also heartwarming to see refugee teachers being able to use their skills uh, to teach other young learners.
1: Yeah, it was heartwarming is the best way to describe it. It gave me joy amidst great sadness. Um, fantastic to speak to you thank you so much and thank you for all the work that you and um and your teams are doing all over the world thank you very much thank you thanks julia okay still to come here on first move a different kind of pelican taking to the skies of costa rica i speak to the CEO of the startup making these unmanned birds and their electrified mission after the break stay with us back to first move some of the most influential companies including microsoft google and apple started out in garages my next guest is looking to join their ranks with some autonomous aerial innovation. U.S. startup Pika is looking to redefine aviation with industrial unmanned electric airplanes. The company has already had success with its agricultural plane called Pelican Spray. The fully autonomous aircraft was built for low-impact crop dusting. Last year, it received regulatory approval in Costa Rica. Now, Pika has set its sights on expanding its fleet with the Pelican Cargo. The fully electric plane has a range of up to 200 miles and a payload of up to 400 pounds or 180 kilos. Like its predecessor, it's controlled remotely, making it the first autonomous vehicle of its class. The company says it's already secured pre-commitments of over 80 orders for the new plane. And joining me now is Michael Nauta. He's co-founder and CEO of Pika. Michael, great to have you with us. Um Pelican Cargo. So is grabbing a lot of the attention. But it is Pelican Spray that is and provides, what, 90% of the technology for the cargo plane. So we should start there with the technology and the vision.
9: Absolutely. Yeah, interestingly, uh, Pelican Spray is the majority of our business. It's a really, really exciting market opportunity. Something about the cargo vehicle really captures people's attention, though. Um, So, yeah, obviously a lot of of, uh, stuff in the press about it.
1: Tell me why it's unique, even just with the spray paint and why it's made such a difference. Obviously, having electric aviation is battery powered. Aviation is something new anyway. But, but why is this so useful for those in places like Costa Rica?
9: Yeah, good question. So um, no one's really bothered to try and automate aerial application or crop dusting, as mo- most people know about it. Um, the ways in which it's unique it's it's extremely easy to use, which is very unusual for like very sophisticated autonomous electric aircraft, so it takes you know a single person more or less to operate it um It's very inexpensive, so it's not you know like a military grade vehicle and then for the actual end customer, it enables all sorts of value propositions. it can spray at night, it reduces the cost of aerial application you don't end up putting a human being inside of the aircraft, which is extremely dangerous,
1: yeah. And more expensive, arguably, too. Um, Explain how you're controlling these, whether it's the spray or, in future, a cargo plane.
9: Yeah, so um, there's still an operator involved, uh, like more or less a pilot, but the pilot is sitting like on the loop, as it's called. So they they give the aircraft high-level commands. You know, they tell it to take off, to land, to loiter, you know, if someone's entered the field, for example. They don't typically actually like manually pilot the aircraft, though.
1: Okay, And and there's a battery, as we've mentioned, and often with the conversation with um, electric cars is the weight of the battery is a huge deal. We're talking in terms of, for the cargo plane at least, 200-mile capacity, so arguably 100 in each way before it needs a charge. Could it carry Mm -hmm. a spare battery and that be replaced to double the time or the distance at least it could travel or is it simply too heavy?
9: Yeah, absolutely. So that's actually something that we're already developing. It's basically a way to add an additional 200 pound battery to the internal storage of the aircraft. Um, So with that battery, then you have a 300 mile useful range instead of 200 miles.
1: Okay. And you also run a leasing model, I believe as well. So it's not a case of buying these outright. Explain to me how the leasing model works and how it compares, at least in the spray case, because that's where it is actually being commercially used to, I don't know, I guess renting a Cessna, which would be used traditionally in, in this kind of spring mm-hmm. example?
9: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, normal aircraft, they, they haven't really changed much over the last yeah. few decades. And so <laughs> you, you buy an aircraft and, you know, you might keep it for 20 years. Our products are changing at just a ridiculous rate. It's, you know, analogous to like the early generation iPhone, for example. Um, and so what makes the most sense is to get the newest technology into customers' hands on you know, a very rapid cadence. Um, and so that involves us taking aircraft back, retrofitting them, et cetera. Um, so the leasing model works a lot better for that rather than an outright sale.
1: How are you financing all of this, Michael? Because when I initially read this and was looking into your uh, company and it was like he started it in his parents' garage, I was like, I can only imagine what your parents thought at that stage? I'm going to innovate in aviation, yeah. electric and autonomous. And they were like, wow, Michael, go for it. Um, how are you financing it? Because you have taken venture capital money, I know. I'm assuming that sort of climate finance tide.
9: Yeah, um, so it's a range. Like in the early days, it was friends and family. You know, we did our first round was probably 30 different angel investors, something like wow. that. And that was back when we were in a garage. Um, at this point, we've, we've moved up. You know, in, in tiers of, of, <laughs> uh, of capital to very well established venture capitalists. The, the most recent who led our round are both climate tech investors. So that's their you know mandate as a fund is is pursuing technology like this.
1: And how far is that money going to get you? I mean, did you take any money for the deposits for the eighty orders that we mentioned in the introduction or um, sort of how much time does that buy you? Because this is an expensive game.
9: Yeah, it is expensive. Um, We we luckily have a pretty small team. We've been able to operate with uh, relatively little capital. So it's a team of 47 people right now. Wow. Um, our most recent financing run, uh, round gives us money out till 2025, something like that. Yeah. We haven't really you know, taken like pre-deposits or anything like that. We don't need to do that in order to capitalize the company and, and kind of yeah. don't want to do that in terms of just uh, how we interact with our customers.
1: And I have about 30 seconds left. How long do we see one of these cargo planes officially used in the skies and making trips?
9: Yeah, uh, good question. So our goal is absolutely before the end of this year. Um, almost wow. certainly starting in the UK.
1: Wow. Michael, that's very exciting. <laughs> um, you're going to come back and talk to me. I've got plenty more questions, as you can well imagine. Um, great to chat to you. Thank you so much. And um, really looking forward to tracking your progress.
9: Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Welcome back. Extreme weather events like Hurricane Ian are increasing in frequency and intensity due to climate change. And in our new series, Transformers, CNN meteorologist Alison Chinchar meets two hurricane hunters. Their mission? To collect life-saving weather data by literally flying into the eye of the storm.
10: Flying over a hurricane, it's otherworldly. It gives me a little bit of euphoria. Pilots are taught to not fly near these things, and here I am, flying at 45,000 feet
11: above it all for the sake of national safety. Former U.S. Air Force pilot, Lieutenant Commander Danielle Varwig is a hurricane hunter pilot for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration.
10: Of course, I get nervous before every
11: flight. NOAA pilots like Varwig fly over and into storms and hurricanes across the Western Atlantic, the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico, collecting weather data to help forecast where and when these events will make landfall. Most of the time
10: we're in the clouds and now we're trusting our instruments and trusting our flight directors on board
11: with us to navigate around it. Flight director Nikki Hathaway is often by her side using radar data to help the pilots navigate through the storm.
10: Yeah, it's a bumpy ride. I would say if you are not a fan of roller coasters, it's probably not the job for you. Essentially on this aircraft, it's a flying science lab. The data that we're collecting on board essentially goes back down to the National Hurricane Center and a variety of other researchers. And this data is being used real time to make life-saving decisions impacting the people on the ground, potentially in harm's way.
11: That data helps protect millions of people across North and Central America and the Caribbean. Due to climate change, increasingly devastating hurricanes, like Ian, are tearing up coastlines across Florida, where these hurricane hunters are based. You're always
10: thinking about those people in harm's way. And when it is your people, you know, when it's impacting your home, there's that extra element of just like stress in the back of your head. But it's really important to compartmentalize those feelings to get the job done.
11: Neither Varwig nor Hathaway flew this season. But over the past couple of years, they've been deployed for days, weeks, sometimes months at a time. It is
10: hard to be away from my kids. The one thing that pushes me through dealing with the separation from my family is the fact that I am serving my country.
11: That mission to serve, to keep others safe, come hail or shine, is what sets these women apart. I want to
10: put myself out there, if anything, to be a role model to little girls, little black girls. I want to make sure that others can look to me and say, "Okay, well,
1: she's doing it. Then I can, too. We like superwomen on this show. And finally, on First Move this Friday. in case you're confused, Lego unveiling the K-pop superstar BTS set featuring the scenes from the music video of hit song Dynamite. It fairly accurately replicates the seven members and of course their famous hairstyles and it's on sale in March. The price tag, a cool $100. Maybe cheap for fans. That's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. I'll see you next week.